Colossians 1, and as you turn there, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that in your mercy and grace, you not only save us, but you call us and you place us within a family, a community of people of like mind, with the same convictions and same passion for the glory of Christ that you call us to be a part of the church. And we thank you, Lord, how you and your providence have brought all of us together as your people here at Royal York Baptist Church. And we give you thanks, Lord, for your providence in working in Bayou and Carlos and Jennifer's life and JP's as well, and guiding them here to Royal York. And we pray, Lord, that our church family would be a blessing to them. We pray that this would be a place for them to grow in their love for Christ and in their love for your people, that this would be a place for them to grow in what it means to serve as a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you would truly transform them and conform them to the image of Christ through all that happens here amongst your people at Royal York. We pray, Lord, that our members would be a blessing to them, and we pray that they would be a blessing to each and every one of us that in your mercy you would unite us together in Christ and in the gospel, and that we would grow in our love for one another. And Father, as we look at your word now, we give you thanks that you have made yourself known through your word. You have revealed yourself in the face of Jesus. And as we look at Christ now here in Colossians 1, we pray, God, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us the eyes of faith and that you would give us hearts to receive your word. That it would create in us a desire to not only live for Christ, but to treasure him above all other things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me read for us Colossians 1, uh, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Amen. Well, we began this series last week on the excellencies of Christ, and we saw that last week Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the, the fullest revelation of God. And now we come to the second description of Christ in verse 15 where Paul states, He is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Historically, um, the Arians, a heretical group, claimed that Paul here was referring to Jesus being the first created being in the creation. Once again, they were seeking to undermine the divinity of Christ. But that's not at all what Paul is arguing here for whatsoever. 
And there's a lot of reasons for this, which we don't have time to look at this morning in its fullness. But the firstborn of all creation is, is simply a title. It's a title that Paul is using out of the Old Testament to convey a certain theological truth about Jesus. It has nothing to do with whether or not he's created or uncreated, but rather the place or the rank that he has in the cosmos. It's a title. It's a title that reveals his supreme authority and rule over all of creation. In the Old Testament, the firstborn um, was the recipient of the inheritance. The firstborn was given the, the highest place of honor, really given the greatest authority. And really, that's the idea that Paul is seeking to convey here. In fact, I actually think Paul is taking this concept right out of Psalm 89, 26 to 27, where in the context it's referring to David, but we know ultimately that it's actually referring to Christ. And this is what we read in Psalm 89, 26 to 27. And this is God speaking. He shall cry to me. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn. God will make him the firstborn. What does he mean by that? He says next, the highest of the kings of the earth. In order for Christ to be the firstborn, it means that he has been placed as the highest of the kings of the earth. It has nothing to do with whether or not he's created or uncreated. Romans 8.29 also alludes to this fact. In Romans 8.29, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So you and I have been foreknown, predestined by God to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then he tells us why. In order that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, Paul's not saying here, in order that Jesus might be the first creation. No, no, he's saying that he holds the highest honor amongst his brothers and sisters because we're conformed to his image, not him being conformed to our image. He's been given the highest rank and supreme authority amongst his people, according to Romans 8.29. But here in Colossians, Paul's argument is that not only has he been given the highest place amongst his people, he's also been given the highest place in all of creation. He has the highest rank. He has supreme authority in all of creation. He's been given a title and supreme rule that no one else has. And the reason is based upon what Paul says next in verses 16 to 17. In other words, he, he grounds this title, this firstborn title to Christ, based upon verses 16 to 17. So why is Jesus the firstborn of all creation? We'll look at verse 16 to 17. For by him, so that word for is the connecting, right? Here's the reason. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, Jesus is the firstborn 
the one with supreme authority and the highest position, because in summary, he's the creator of all. Now, there's a lot in these two verses, but there's three truths that I want us to see in regards to Christ and his relationship to the creation, which gives him the title of firstborn. And the first is simply this. The reason why Christ is the firstborn is because all things are created in him. All things are created in him. That's the first thing that Paul states in verse 16. For by him all things were created. More literally, for in him all things were created. See, Paul here is making a distinction between all that is created and the creator. Christ is not a superior creature in the midst of all that is created. Christ is the creator of all that is. Now notice he says the words, all things. All things. Not the majority of created things. Not some things, but all things. And just in case we don't get it, Paul states all things four times in these two verses. He says, for in him all things are created. Then he says, all things were created through him and for him. Then, we're, then Paul writes, he is before all things. And then he concludes with, in him all things hold together. See, really, what, what Paul's saying is this. Christ is the agent of creation just as he's the agent of salvation. John 1 makes this abundantly clear where John talks about the Word who was with God, right? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. There's His agency. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Without Him was not anything made that was made. See, there are hints all throughout the Old Testament that the Word of God, the Son of God, was active in creation. He was the agent and the means by which creation came to be. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hopes. And of course, when you, when you look at Genesis 1, which Josh read for us, how is it that creation comes into existence? Does God use his, his hand, so to speak? No. God said. God said. He used his word. Let there be light, and there was light. And God said, and God said. It was through his word, and the word happens to be a person. The Son of God was there in Genesis 1, active in creation, just as the Father and the Spirit were there. Which means when we read Genesis 1, and really the, the whole Testament, we ought to read it with a triune understanding and a Christological lens. That is, we read the Old Testament understanding that it's the triune God who is speaking and working, and Christ also is present. The Son of God is present there in the Old Testament as well. So Christ is the firstborn of all creation because he's the creator. But I want you to notice that Paul speaks about the scope of Christ's creative work. He says all things were created in him, but then he gets a little more specific 
to show the absolute reign of Christ over the creation. In him all things were created, and then he adds, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So heaven and earth, visible and invisible. So so the scope of his creation, or the scope of his creating, goes beyond the earth and reaches into the heavens. The heavens are the work of his hands. But it's not only material, visible things, but it's also invisible things. There are invisible, created beings, another, a number incomprehensible to us, that are created by Christ. And he alludes to some of these when he says thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now there is some debate over what what each of these are, where whether Paul is using similar terms to convey one reality or whether he's speaking of distinct realities. But what is absolutely clear is this, is that he's definitely referring to spiritual beings, both angelic and demonic. Ephesians 6 uses the same language to describe the demonic powers that we're at war with spiritually. Now, I think there's a reason Paul lists these spiritual powers here out of all that he could have listed, but we're, we're going to come back to that. But here's the point. Christ is the firstborn of all creation because in him, all of it was created. From the most powerful spiritual beings that if you and I were to behold, we would be tempted to worship to the tiniest microscopic atoms as well. The fingerprints of Christ are everywhere to be seen. And this is why the scriptures say that it's the fool who says there's no God. See, our secular society pronounces that that we're fools for believing that there's some omnipotent creator. But the Bible unapologetically says the reverse. In my opinion, it takes way greater faith to believe there's no creator behind the creation than to believe there is a creator behind the creation. So, he is the firstborn of all creation because all things are created in him. Secondly, Christ is the firstborn of all creation because all things are created for him. All things are created for him. That's how he ends verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. Now I think there's two ways for us to think about this. The first is this. All that is created is meant to point to the glory and wonder of Christ. All that is created is meant to point to the glory and wonder of Christ. Everything. Food. Animals. Plants. Humans. Music. Color. The heavens above. The land. The oceans. Historical events, everything that is created is for Christ. We could go on and on about all those things. But all that is created is meant to point us to Christ in his glory. Secondly, all that is created doesn't merely point to Christ, but it also serves the very purposes of Christ, whether created things realize it or not. See, I believe the scriptures make clear that 
all of creation and redemption are the means by which God accomplishes his supreme purpose, which is to reveal and magnify the supreme worth of Christ for the joy of all people. Redemption and all of creation serves that singular purpose. Now, I don't have time this morning to to argue that fully from the scriptures, but, but let me give you just one or two examples of that principle at work. All of creation working for the purposes of God, whether creation realizes it or not. Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and Judas were all created by God. They were in opposition to God. And in their wickedness, they murdered Jesus. And from a purely human perspective, we would think that they were thwarting God's purposes. But the reality is, they in their unwillingness, or sorry, their willingness to murder Jesus actually fulfilled the purposes of God. Because it was through Christ being lifted up onto that cross that Jesus would draw the nations to him and they would worship him as the savior of the world. As Acts 4, 27 to 28 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And then we read this, To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Caiaphas, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, whether they realized it or not, in murdering the Son of God, they were fulfilling the purposes of God that God had planned before the foundation of the world. Or, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things. There's all things again. God works all things according to the counsel of of his will. In Romans 11, um, Paul talks about the mystery of salvation and, and election in, in regards to the people of Israel and also the Gentiles. And, and because of Israel's sin, uh, salvation has come to the Gentiles. They've been grafted in, so to speak. But through the Gentiles, we're told in Romans 11 that God is also going to restore Israel to repentance and faith. And Paul says some very mysterious, profound things about God's purposes with Israel and the Gentiles. And one of the things he said, which is so hard for us to grasp, Paul says that God has consigned Israel over to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on them. And Paul becomes so overwhelmed reflecting and writing on the incomprehensible ways in which God mysteriously accomplishes his purposes that he simply can't help but break out into worship as he ponders that which is beyond his pondering. After he has said that God has handed them over to disobedience in order that he might show them mercy, he says this in verse 33 to 36, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
If you want a God that you can fully comprehend and understand and fit into a box, it's not the God of Christianity. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. And then he says this, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Have any of us known the mind of God? Have any of us been able to counsel God in any way? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Everything that we have comes from him. And then Paul concludes by saying something very similar to what he says in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For from him, everything comes from him. And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. You see, you may be here thinking, I will not serve the purposes of God. I won't serve the purposes of Christ. And my response to you is simply this. Well, really, God's response to you is, yes, you will. You will either serve his purposes through your rebellion or you will serve his purposes through your devotion. Either way, you will serve the purposes of God because all things, including you, have been created for Christ. And this, friends, is why Christ is the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things are created and all things are for him. Thirdly, he's the firstborn of all creation because creation is sustained by him. That's what Paul articulates in verse 17 where he says, and he is before all things, also referring to his firstborn identity. And then he says this, and in him, all things hold together. All things right now are currently being held together in Christ. Biblical revelation tells us that not only has Christ created all things, but he sustains all things. Even the spiritual demonic powers are sustained by Christ. There is no created thing in and of itself that is self-sustaining. Everything is contingent upon Christ. Hebrews 1, 2 to 3 um, alludes to this where we read that he, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ right now is upholding our universe. Right now, he is sustaining if our, very, our very lives. If he chose not to in this very moment, the universe would implode. We live and move and have our being in him. This is why Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Why he's been given supreme rule and authority over all that is. Because in him, all things are created, all things are for him, and all things are sustained by him. So what does all this mean for us? Well, there's a lot of things that this means for us, but let me just capture a few ideas for us. The first is this. If Christ is the creator of all things, 
then there's an order and design to creation established by the one who designed it. That is, there's a true nature and essence to created things designed by Christ. He gives all that is created its design and nature and function. That there's really a real objective essence and nature, for example, to a tree, a lion, a human, a man, and a woman. We have a real nature to ourselves. Which means to defy Christ's order and design is not only rebellion, but it's also futile and suicidal. It's as futile and suicidal as the man who thinks he can defy gravity and therefore jumps off a cliff with no parachute. Isaiah 45, 9 says this, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. That is, your pot doesn't have a handle. Does the pot say that to the maker? See, Christ's design and order of things will always, in the end, prevail because they're real and they're true. See, as Christians, we don't believe that we create our own realities. We don't believe that, that simply we can create a reality from the projections of our minds. Rather, we believe our task is to discover reality and conform ourselves to that reality because when we conform ourselves to that reality, we are conforming ourselves to the ways of Christ. Secondly, if Christ is the firstborn of all creation, he created all things, all things are created for him, and he sustains all things, then you're not as autonomous as you think. You're not as autonomous as you think. If Christ is sustaining our very lives, then the secular idea of self-autonomy is utterly ridiculous. If, if you're utterly dependent upon another for your very own existence and sustained existence, then you're not as autonomous as you think you are. Christ has authority over your life, whether you acknowledge that authority or not. Think about it. None of us had any say in us being created. You and I were created, we were born... And God never once sought our counsel on whether or not we wanted to be born or created. Not only that, we didn't decide who our parents would be, our siblings, the time and place of our birth, our ethnicity, our appearance. We often don't decide the, the trials that we face in life. We don't decide often the health issues that we face. Yeah, we like, we like to convince ourselves that we do. That if we just eat this way, we'll avoid these health issues. My mom eats way healthier than my dad. She exercises way more than my dad and has a lot more health issues than my dad. 
When I went to Honduras with a basketball team to do missions work, I didn't get to have any say over the fact that I would be the only person on my team that would get a horrific parasite and land me in the hospital for three days, and to this day, I still have face some of those side effects. God didn't consult me on that. If he had, I probably would have suggested that it happened to one of my teammates instead. And guess what? We don't decide when we die either. The day of our death has been appointed by God, and the way we will die hasn't been decided by us either. We're not as autonomous as we think. Abraham Kuyper, reflecting on the sovereignty of Christ, said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, My. You belong to Christ, whether you realize it or not. Thirdly, brothers and sisters, your life is in the sovereign hands of Christ. Therefore, do not fear, for he is for you. And he has proven that he is for you, not only because he created you, but because he died for you and redeemed you. This past year has revealed the power of fear over people's lives, even amongst Christians. And I think it's so important for us to remember that our lives are in the hands of our sovereign Lord, who is for us. 2021 could very likely be the year in which some of us die. And it won't fundamentally be because of a virus or a car accident or cancer or whatever other possible way. It will fundamentally be because the creator and sustainer of your life has appointed for you in 2021 to meet him. And this doesn't mean, therefore, live foolishly. My life's in Christ's hands. I can do whatever I want. No, there's a difference between what I would call godly risk and foolish risk. So let's just take our example today. Foolish risk today would be having complete disregard for all medical health guidelines, going to a party of a thousand people where you don't know anyone there except a few people sharing food with all these random people. That's what I would call foolish risk in the midst of our current circumstances. But godly risk would be getting together with some of your brothers and sisters in the Lord, encouraging one another, praying together, even sharing a meal together. In other words, there's always risk in life, but there's godly risk and foolish risk. And as Christians, we ought not fear the chaos of this world because our lives are in the hands of our Creator and our Savior. You will not add a single day to your life by worrying about tomorrow. Fourthly, and most important, because Christ is your Creator, because He's my Creator, because He's the sustainer of our lives, He alone is worthy of of our worship. Christ being the creator and sustainer of all that is makes him the one who alone is worthy of our devotion and supreme and complete worship. I said that I would come back to the list that Paul gives in verse 16 about the spiritual beings where he lists 
thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And the question is, I think we need to ask is, why, out of all of the created things that Paul could have lists in verse 16, why does he list these spiritual beings? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, I think Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that even our greatest enemy, Satan and the demonic powers, we do not need to fear because they are created by Christ, they are created sustained by Christ, and they will serve the purposes of Christ. Which means, Christian, you do not need to fear. Satan does not have the power that many people think he has. He needs to ask Jesus for permission to harm you. You remember Jesus' conversation with the Apostle Peter about him being tempted, being sifted like wheat? He said to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He asked for permission. And Jesus allowed Satan a little bit of room in Peter's life to the point where he denied Christ three times. But Christ said, I will restore you. Feed my sheep. So on the one hand, we need not fear. And that's why I think Paul lists these spiritual beings. These spiritual beings, though they are evil, many of them, are created for Christ and sustained by him. But I also think Paul wants to make clear that there's only one who is worthy of worship. There's only one who is worthy of worship. Remember, these false teachers were insisting on the worship of angels, spiritual beings. And Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that all created spiritual beings are created in Christ, for Christ, and sustained, for, and sustained by Christ. Therefore, worship none other than Him. He alone is worthy. So therefore, a simple question for all of us is this. Does your life demonstrate that you're a true worshiper of Jesus Christ? He is worthy of your worship. He is the firstborn of all creation, and therefore we worship him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son. And we thank you, Lord, that it's through him that we have been created, that we have been sustained by him, and that we are created for him. And I pray, Lord, that we would seek to live our lives in devotion and obedience to him so that he might be glorified in our midst. And I pray, Lord, also that if we are not worshiping him, that this very day we would truly begin to worship the Savior of the world, the creator of the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.